Hey, forward-thinking fans, we've got a great tech podcast for you to binge listen to. It's called ZigZag. The host is journalist Manoush Zomorodi. ZigZag documents Manoush and her producer Jen as they start a new kind of media company. They experiment with blockchain technology, cryptocurrencies, and explore new ways of thinking about the business model tied to journalism. And it's all done in real time. And in the second season, they dive into ideas centered around the concept of trust. Trust in their creative partnership, in our democratic system, and in media. It's part podcast, part social experiment. Listen to ZigZag on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcast app right now. Hey, I'm Kay He. Welcome to Forward Thinking, a podcast about recreating your career, brought to you by Quartz and supported by J.P. Morgan Chase. As a teenager, I would go to Barnes & Noble and look for something closeted that I could connect to. The LGBT magazines were in the back shelf on the bottom tier of the magazine rack and sometimes behind a black plastic censored shield. And it just felt like we deserved more and that that became the design challenge. That's Ryan Fitzgibbons. He used to be a consultant at IDEO before he quit and started a magazine called Hello Mister about men who date men. I'm joined by Kevin Delaney, editor-in-chief and co-founder of Quartz. Hey, Kevin. Hey, Kay. What strikes me about Ryan's story is that he had this observation as a teenager that ultimately played a role in his career reinvention. I think that's a pretty universal thing. There are experiences we have, things that we notice when we're teenagers that ultimately follow us through our lives and actually shape who we are and what we do professionally. I can relate in so many ways as I was a shy, skinny, insecure teenager whose one of his biggest fears was that I would never uh, find love and die alone. So part of my earlier career was hatching up a plan to overcompensate for those feelings. And it was basically built off of like recognition, status, and making money. Fast forward 15 years where many of those things happened, none of those feelings went away. And in fact, they were even worse because you got the thing you wanted and the feelings were still there. And so, so much of this next chapter of my life has been acknowledging those feelings, confronting them, And that has launched me into this next leg of my career where I tell stories about them and write about it all the time. When I got to IDEO, it was like winning the lottery, I suppose, in the design world. It taught me a lot about what I know now and how I apply and approach design. It's kind of just investigative journalism, right? So a lot of my time spent at IDEO was actually traveling, you know, doing all these types of deep dives into people, um, and and why they do the things that they do. And as a communications designer, what was like a representative day? The days were pretty varied, I guess, but it's funny, like I started out being, you know, more of a visual technical graphic designer. And then when I got to IDEO, they very quickly noticed and put me on a track that was more strategic and earlier in the process of that sort of high-level thinking. And then 
I realized at that early stage in my career, I really needed and wanted to pursue and sink my teeth into a problem from the beginning to the end. And so the strategy part of it really helped me define that for myself. Mm -hmm. And then I needed to sort of focus on one product. Can you trace back that desire to want to implement something in your life? I think it was very specific to the personal path that I was on, aligned with the need and desire as a designer to complete a project. But at the time, I was my early 20s, living in the Castro in San Francisco, and was recently out. So for me, it was actually this sort of personal agenda, I guess, that I needed to sort of create something that I was experiencing and that I could identify with. And so that was really the overlap of my personal and professional that became apparent that I really needed to pursue Mm -hmm. this little side project that I had going on. And then the rest kind of just evolved and snowballed from there. So Ryan had this observation as a teenager, and then he became a communications designer, and he actually applied those tools to address the problem, right? Yes, Ryan used his design and communication and branding skills to do what he called rebranding the gay community. And that was specifically related to his story as a young man who had just uh, recently come out and couldn't identify with the mainstream media's representation of what it meant to be a young gay man. And so fast forward, he ended up moving to Australia and starting a print magazine called Hello Mister, aimed at men who date men. You started this as a side project. What did that consist of? Really, it was just a blog. blog. I mean, it, was, it was like a side All hustle. side projects start as yeah, blogs. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it was really just a few friends in San Francisco and myself writing some musings about how Whitney Houston's How Will I Know helped me come out or how a breakup really is a universal thing. And that I don't know. I think it was just a lot of um, very innocent and amateur mm. attempts at being heard. What were you experiencing that you wanted to further explore? So I felt this super intense need to share my story and share what I was experiencing and how it contrasted to what I was living and where I was living in sort of the epicenter of a gay community in the Castro in in San Francisco. What I was experiencing, what I saw around me was all of the very traditional and more or less one-dimensional depiction of gay community and gay life and At the time, it was also, we were in the middle of Prop 8, pre-marriage equality at a national level. And so at 24, 23 years old, I was feeling really disconnected to that conversation because it wasn't a part of my story yet. I had just come out and I was just looking for a community around me, whereas the rest of the nation was really focused on this Mm -hmm. bigger goal of achieving equality through a heteronormative way of looking at it. And that was marriage, and that was a very easy conversation to have that was palatable. And I just kept feeling like this isn't what I'm seeing and what's, you know, whether it's politics or pop culture, that was all that was sort of being portrayed in in gay media and, and slowly into mainstream media. But 
what was happening in the middle and in the everydayness of our queer identities, that for me was the personal challenge and my own design challenge to myself, I guess, to take the symbols that were so established and so recognizable and put them aside for a bit and see how we could self-identify and redefine and maybe rebrand ourselves as a gay community. What were some of the everyday things that you were trying to work through that you felt were not being served to you as a reader or consumer? I mean, it was as mundane as going through a breakup or navigating spaces as a queer person and looking for community and trying to find a sense of camaraderie as LGBT spaces were becoming less and less physical and more digital. And so there was a lot of this sort of where do I connect and how do I connect and how do I find meaningful relationships when Grindr is kind of the default. There was this shift, and especially in digital queer connections, that I was feeling and that wasn't really being discussed or resonating. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to sort of have a platform to connect people in a different way and maybe take them back offline eventually through events and other sort of meetups to maintain and preserve some sense of community offline. What's cool about Ryan's story is that he was driven to create something that didn't exist and that he really wanted as a consumer, as a human being. In your experience, in your career of reinvention, did you have a similar drive? I didn't have that drive in the sense that I didn't know what the consumer wanted. And so it was almost like the reverse process where I just put it out there. And I started writing about, look, if you saw my LinkedIn profile, you would assume that my life should be going great. And it was going really well, but it masked so many of these core human anxieties that would kind of gnaw at me from within. And so I started writing about it. I didn't think it was going to be a business. I didn't even really know how to write as a professional writer. And then little by little, people started coming to me and saying, when you said that thing about being yelled at in a meeting and all of a sudden going to this really scary place, I've felt that before. So I kind of backed into this style of writing through shedding of my own personal insecurities. Thanks to JP Morgan Chase for supporting Forward Thinking, which showcases the bold individuals who have challenged the status quo to recreate their careers. Last week, we heard from Janice Badler, president of the J.P. Morgan Chase Foundation. Janice came from the nonprofit advocacy world, where she spent 10 years at Unidos U.S. It's the largest national Hispanic civil rights and advocacy organization in the United States. That's a big jump on multiple fronts. When she was at Unidos U.S., the organization had around 115 people. J.P. Morgan Chase, at last count, had over 250,000 globally. But transitioning organizations and structures gave Janice plenty of perspective. Rather than hold her back, this move made her highly effective in her new role. It turns out that working in advocacy, where results don't always appear immediately, teaches you a lot about how to play the long game. 
doing social change work in a corporate environment requires us to be very disciplined about what are we going to see in the near term while we work towards long-term goals. And I do think this is a unique and special way that J.P. Morgan Chase is doing this business. It sets it apart from other corporate philanthropies is that we do have an eye on both. We understand that we need to see short-term outcomes, but we're really in it for the long-term impact. These are not things that we throw a couple dollars at and we click our heels and they are all somehow better. So we need to, as a corporate philanthropy, invest with discipline where we are seeing those near-term results, but we also have to do it with an eye towards long-term change. That kind of discipline Janice is talking about isn't easy to develop, but it's one of the many skills Janice brought to her new environment and work culture. Moving from nonprofits to the corporate world taught Janice a lot about how the business world works. And she's been able to use that knowledge to expand the impact that the J.P. Morgan Chase Foundation can have around the world, but also the people she manages at home in the U.S. Now, as president of the foundation, I get to lead this incredibly talented, dedicated team who's come to this work from all walks. They've all landed here because they share this passion and excitement around trying to leverage everything that we have as a corporation to advance economic mobility and inclusive economic growth in the communities where we live and work. So what can you learn from Janice's story? One thing that's clear to me is that sometimes the most powerful career moves are the ones that require the biggest leaps. When you make a shift in your career, you bring with you a unique perspective that helps you stand out from the people around you. You see things that they don't, and vice versa, which is invaluable for any company that's combating groupthink and looking for new solutions to old problems. Put another way, it's the career transitions that make the least sense on paper that can be the most rewarding. J.P. Morgan Chase believes there is a pressing need to expand access to opportunity and help more people move up the economic ladder. The firm is taking a strategic, data-driven approach to doing just that, which includes a $500 million commitment to driving growth in cities through their Advancing Cities initiative. Learn more at jpmorganchase.com slash advancing cities. You use the phrase kind of rebranding the gay community. You're in your early 20s, been working yeah. for a few years. How do you get the confidence to pursue such a lofty <laughs> goal? Yeah, I mean, looking back, it feels really naive to to make that sort of... The ignorance of youth, right? Absolutely, yeah. I just felt like really possessed to do it. I think having having said that and using that as kind of my reason to be in the early days and, and what I told people I was trying to do just kind of amplified the importance of it to me. But as a teenager, I would go to Barnes & Noble and the... LGBT magazines were on the back shelf on the bottom lower tier of the magazine rack and sometimes behind a black plastic censored shield. And it just felt like we deserved more and that if we really wanted to have this conversation globally and nationally to begin, we needed to sit next to GQ and we needed to have presence in all the ways. And Mm -hmm. so that became the design challenge for me. And I think I used the phrase rebranding gay as my mission just to propel me and to sort of hold me accountable to 
some form of reestablishing our and reclaiming our identities. And when did the blog grow wings and spark an inkling that there might be something beyond that? Well, it actually, um, I took it down like after maybe six months. So it was like a really short window of time where it helped me establish a framework for how and what type of content I wanted to see. And it helped me I kind of create an identity and a tone of voice mm-hmm. for the brand. And then work got busy. IDEO sent me on a project in Singapore, so I spent a few months there. And during that time, I sort of just shelved the idea. And then I had brought some magazines along with me to Singapore. And I recognized a few months in that there were a few magazines that never left the apartment but the others are the ones that I took on the bus to work because I took public transportation every day. And so the ones that stayed in the in the apartment were the gay ones, and they stayed concealed in confidence. And, and so then my challenge to myself kind of evolved and grew from just rebranding something to creating something that everyone around could also accept it for what it is and not a salacious magazine that people might have assumptions about when I say a gay lifestyle magazine versus a magazine about men who date men, which Mm -hmm. is the tagline of Hello Mister for a very specific reason, because it gives you that moment of pause to think, oh, this is about stories of men who date men versus the, the former, which I think instantly has a different connotation. Was it a conscious decision to not have the word gay in the tagline? It was, absolutely. Another one that wasn't as transparent was that in my first issue, I didn't include any rainbows. Okay. And I was very kind of intentional about that just to myself. It was like, how can I do this without relying on what everyone else thinks of when they think of us? And, you know, I have a lot of thoughts around that and I have a lot of hangups about what maybe that meant at the time about my own security and in self and it's not to say that I wasn't disregarding or not paying respect to what gave us that visibility and created the space for me to even exist but it was really just a a design challenge Mm -hmm. to myself. How did you think of the business element? I don't think I did. (laughs) (laughs) I think again like if I would have known everything that it would have required and if I would have listened to everyone that was saying print is dead, so yeah. run the other direction. I would have never done it. And I think I figured it out along the way. And what was so important was that the community was established and felt connected to the brand in a way that I relied on them the entire time that I produced the magazine to not just financially support it through our memberships or events and other things that I grew, but to ensure that every time we put out an issue, they wanted more. So it really was the community that kept it afloat. What were the the most transferable skills that you had from IDEO that you were able to put to use in creating Hello Mister? I think being an engaged and active listener is honestly the simplest and most powerful tool that I've taken on. I think as designers, we often approach things as visionaries and feeling the need of inventing something original. And I think if we often 
take the time and step back to listen to what people actually need, the results really varied. And so that really in my early development of this blog, Hello Mister, and what it was at the time was such a personal reflection of what I was going through, having the space away from it to then do my homework and really understand if other people wanted it and talk to people and have my own informal focus groups with friends and with people in queer spaces to understand what people valued and what they cared about, that's when I started to piece the impact that IDU had on me back to what I was doing with a print magazine. Because it's quite a departure, yeah. but it felt like it was set up for me. That sounds like such a phenomenal training ground for so many careers. Absolutely, yeah. What were some of the biggest challenges in the Hello Mister journey? I think obviously any small business owner will attest to managing people. And I think as much as we have an idea and want to pursue it fully, we need help to do that and really scale it. And for the first year or two, I was so independent and just working really in isolation in Australia, especially to see this thing come to life. But then as it started to grow and I needed to have more support on a daily basis, that's when it started to feel like more of a challenge because a lot of my time was spent outside of actually doing the work and that mm-hmm. same sort of story of how the higher and further you go, the further away you are mm-hmm. from actually where you would want to be spending your time. And so I think just on a personal note, that was a big shift for me in, in sort of learning how to run a business and evolve my own skills while nurturing a team and and sort of bringing them up in the world. I can totally relate to so many of those things as an entrepreneur. Um, why do you think you were so hesitant in that first year to get help? Yeah, I don't know if if it how much of it is my own ego getting in the way or necessity, right? So I was doing something really different and I think I recognized that and I believed so intensely about it that it really needed to come out of me in its purest form. And um, then once I got settled in New York after I came back from Australia, after the first issue was published, then I realized, okay, this is a bigger game. Mm -hmm. Part of the reason of moving to New York was really to be taken seriously. And I think in order to be taken seriously by this industry, I needed to have more hands and more people sort of out there spreading the work. And yeah, I mean, it sort of was natural. Maybe in retrospect, it seems a bit segmented, Mm -hmm. but we've evolved so much as a publication, and that's only because of the people that I brought in later, right? I could have only gone so far by myself. Ryan started out as a solo creator. How do you think about the impact you can have when you're just going out on your own? Well, as someone who left a large company, it was hard at first to be so resource constrained to to just me. And you couldn't grow, you couldn't scale, you couldn't touch lots and lots of people. But what I personally realized was that even if you connect with one, two, three people with these stories and with these conversations, that was enough of an impact. And then with time, that too can grow. Without prompting, I've received so many coming out letters and just personal stories of how 
this magazine and the community around it really helped them see themselves differently or place themselves in a community for the first time ever. So many people have told me that Hello Mister was the first gay publication that they've ever bought, which to me sort of reaffirms the initial goal is that the more we can give people a new representation of who we are, the more they can take that into their own hands and reclaim it and redefine it for themselves. And and so they continue to come in, especially after I've made the announcement that I'm ceasing print. Mm-hmm. The stories of how this has affected people, a 35-year-old man who discovered the magazine a few years ago, was married to a woman and had a kid and realized he was living someone else's life and decided he couldn't anymore and came out and wrote me this incredible story that, you know, makes me feel numb in a lot of ways because it's such a responsibility that we had to really help people understand and see themselves. But on the other side of that is so rewarding and so powerful that a piece of print can do that for someone's life and really shape, you know, their happiness. That's incredible. Yeah. And with Hello, Mr. coming to, to an end, how do you see the clues in what you should do next? How do you discover them? Moving into whatever comes next, the most important thing for me will be that I can feel the impact or understand the importance of what it is that I'm building. So it can be someone else's product. It can be a completely different industry or demographic, but do we need it? And is it doing anything good for the world? Mm. And I think that that's the bare minimum of what I'm looking for in the next phase, whether it's something that I create or it's, again, someone else's product. But that's the biggest thing for me. Well, this has been such a wonderful conversation. I'm really inspired and have learned a lot. So thank you. Thank you. And I, I wish you the best of luck on this next chapter. I appreciate it. Thanks for the time today. Ryan's magazine, Hello, Mister, stopped publishing in the end. Why do you think his story is still interesting? I think that we love to see things in terms of binary events. So you go from one career to the next one. And in his case, it's much more emergent and slow moving, almost like the seasons. You know, he is able to build off of the skill base that he has, but also reorient towards this kind of mission that he's pursuing, all while trying to satisfy the levers of what makes a successful business. And to some degree, that's the fun part of career reinventions, is that they actually never end. Thank you for listening to Forward Thinking, brought to you by Quartz and supported by J.P. Morgan Chase. If you want to learn more about recreating your career, please visit qz.com slash work. And to learn more about me, your host, please visit radreads.co. This podcast was produced by Jessica Glazer and Oluwakemi Aladesui, with additional production support from N2 Communications and original score by Hannes Brown.